Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 240 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Douglas Knoll, author of De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Doug is also a lawyer turned peacemaker. Doug, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jordan. How are you? I'm wonderful. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And the first question I'd like to ask you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Well, I guess it depends on how you define the public interest. But my current main project, aside from generally practicing as a professional mediator and teacher, is working in my Prison of Peace project. And the last seven years with my colleague, Will Copper, I've been working in uh, maximum security prisons teaching lifers how to be peacemakers to stop the violence in prison using the techniques that I've developed as a peacemaker over the years. Um, And we work now in nine California prisons. Uh, I've taught over a thousand inmates how to be uh, peacemakers and and inmate uh, inmate mediators. And I've trained uh, about 250 of them to be trainers so that the project becomes self-sustaining within a particular prison population. Um, the effect of this has been to, of course, reduce violence in prisons, which reduces costs to the state, um, and uh, the stories that we get back from the inmates in terms of how they have reestablished connections with their families um, are nothing short of amazing. And we've had 250 of our inmates released with zero reports of recidivism. They're all doing great on the outside. So we have what we think is a really incredible project going that is really doing a lot of good for the state of California. So you were previously a trial lawyer, though you've uh, been removed from that profession for 17 years. Can you speak, and and traditionally in in the American popular consciousness, there's a sense that it's more of a confrontational uh, uh, profession to be in. When you're litigating, you are there to win, and it's a zero-sum game against an an opponent who, who you hope will lose. How were you able to establish this uh, process of creating peacemakers, how did you even come to realize that this was a mission for you? Uh, And then how did you develop the metrics and techniques to first turn yourself into a peacemaker and then to be able to pass that skill on to others? Well, the the process for me was a a process of maturation. And I took up the martial arts in my mid-30s in a northern Chinese kung fu style, which is extremely violent street fighting, and became a secondary black belt when I was just before my 41st birthday. And at that time, my teacher recognized that I was pretty arrogant and dangerous and said, go learn Tai Chi and don't come back until you master it, which is a death sentence because you never mastered Tai Chi. But Tai Chi is the oldest of all martial arts. It's, it in itself is a violent martial art uh, when practiced that way. Um, but it has two paradoxes. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. So soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. This did not compute. Uh, took me years, years of practice, four or five years of practice, but finally I began to understand the truth about being soft and vulnerable to be strong and, and powerful. And one day I was in the courtroom and cross-examining somebody in my own inimitable style, and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? After that trial, I went on a long river trip, spent 10 days uh, in Whitewater thinking about 
how many people I'd served as a trial lawyer and concluded that I wasn't going to do this anymore. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I came back. Uh, I, at, the, at the time, I was living in Fresno, California, in Central California, and I came back, and as I was driving out of the mountains to my office, um, I heard a public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered by Fresno Pacific University. And that caught my attention. Ultimately, I enrolled in the master's degree program. So for a couple of years, I was a full-time graduate student, a full-time trial lawyer, and a full-time law professor, uh, which ended my first marriage, <laughs> and began the journey of, of, of learning to be a peacemaker. And uh, quit the practice of law in 2000, opened my own practice as a mediator, arbitrator, and peacemaker. And since that time, I have uh, spent my professional time either helping people resolve deep and intractable conflicts or teaching them how to do what I do. The prison project started with a letter that we received from a woman serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in August of 2009, asking my colleague, Laurel Coffer, whether or not she would come in and teach the lifers in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world to teach them how to become mediators so they could stop the violence. And Laurel uh, called me, and we talked about it, and he said, if this is real, we'll do it. Um, six months later, uh, about eight months later, really, in April of 2010, we started training our first 15 women in that prison. And interestingly, the woman who uh, wrote that letter just received, this summer, received a letter of clemency from Governor Brown, and she expects to be released from prison sometime this, this fall. And a large reason of that is because she was the person who was one of the people who started the prison abuse project. We started with the women in California in both women's prisons and then got called by a warden to come into a men's prison. We started teaching the men in 2013. This last year, we've received a large grant from the Department of Corrections, and now we're in an additional six prisons, a total of nine altogether, and we have a colleague in Greece who is now doing prison abuse in nine uh, prisons in Greece, both men's and women's prisons. So it's, it's become a grassroots international project. Now, why would if you would, if you would indulge in, uh, me for a moment, Douglas? Why would a prisoner seek to be involved in this sort of program? Does it is it a break from the monotony of their daily existence as an incarcerated person, or is there a lot of violence that they're suffering through, and, and they want fewer inmates to attack them? What is it that they that motivates them to do your course? There, uh, you touched on a couple of the motivations. What, we're, what we have found over the years is that there is something about our project, the energy of what we teach, that attracts inmates to us. And we've had inmates who have gone through our curriculum, which is very rigorous. We teach at the graduate school level because uh, we're both law professors. And um, they have hated what we've taught, but they are so, there's something in their heart is so attracted to what we're teaching that they can't stay away from our classes. And they actually go through and become certified mediators with us. What I, what I think they find is they come in, the idea of becoming a peacemaker is attractive to them because most many of the, we work mostly with lifers and long-termers. They've all killed somebody. They're all murderers of one kind or another. And many of them are looking for change. And what we tell them is this is not a self-help program. This is about changing a life sentence to a life of service. And we tell them, if you're interested in serving other people in your prison community, this is for you. If you're not interested in serving other people, this is not for you. And for a lot of these guys, it really resonates with them. For the first time, somebody's offering them a chance to give back in a very tangible, powerful way. 
And once they come in and they start taking the classes and they see the value of what we're teaching uh, and they see how it's immediately transforming their lives, um, they just become addicted to it. And we have, once once we get through the first two or three class sessions, we have very little rollover after that. We, we, you know, we will lose people in the first two classes because people realize this is too much work. But once we get past that attrition, then we, get, we have very loyal, dedicated students who are really want to improve themselves. And this is true at every level of prison. In California, there are four basic levels of security, levels one through four. Four is a secured housing unit, lockdown in shackles, uh, which the training inmates are coming out of gangs at Portland State Prison, and we're about 100 feet from where Charles Manson is incarcerated. Um, and that is a really intense, deeply secure uh, prison where in every movement of an inmate is controlled. Uh, and they are doing just as well, if not better, than inmates in, in lower security prisons that have much more freedom of movement. Uh, now, we haven't we found it. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'd like to ask if you're frightened at all or what feelings you experience uh, as you're going into these prisons and teaching them. Clearly, as a former litigator, um, you must have experience with individuals who end up going to prison. Uh, individuals who may or may have committed uh, heinous crimes, and I'm sure that you had some experience going into prison to visit or jail at least to visit clients. Um, interestingly, but I, guess, I would say, yeah. interestingly, I had no experience in this at all. I was a civil trial lawyer, as was Laurel. Both of us tried cases in civil courts. We, the only contact they had with criminal law was in law school. I had never been in a prison before we started the Prison Peace Project. I'd never tried a criminal case, never handled a criminal matter. I didn't know anything about the system. Um, the first couple of times you go into a, 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 a high-security prison, it's a little intimidating. The doors slam around you, and you, you know, you're in the belly of the beast, and it's pretty spooky. Uh, but like anything else, human beings are great at adaptation, and you adapt to it. And today, it is uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty normal experience for me. I will say that in the nine years, we have been doing this. I have never, ever, ever once felt any threat to my safety, ever. Not that it would really matter because there's a secondary black belt. People would be stupid to take me on. But uh, I have never had anything but the deepest respect. Same thing with war. These men and women treat us with deep respect and gratitude, no matter what kind of a prison they're in, because we're coming in and giving them tools that are, that are transforming their lives in really deep ways. It's gotten to the point where the, the parole boards now recognize the value of what we teach. And when we see an inmate that has graduated from our curriculum, um, they're more likely than not to grant parole if, if the inmate is demonstrating that he or she is really absorbed what we have to teach because they know that what we teach is so powerful and effective. So and what is it that you teach? Let's go, let's go into it. Let's well, delve into your book and your course. Yeah. What is it? So we so the course is broken into segments and in modules and different levels. First, the first thing we do is we teach inmates how to listen, and that's what led me to, to write the book that's coming out in a couple of weeks. The Escalate. Um, we teach them. We spend uh, a considerable amount of time teaching them four levels of reflective listening, and really focusing on the two deepest levels, which is core messaging and affect labeling. Once, that's the foundation for everything that we teach, because if you can de-escalate somebody by the way you listen to them, then you can solve a lot of problems. You can't do, you can't argue with people. You can't persuade people who are upset or angry or potentially violent. But, I mean, their emotional centers are activated. The prefrontal cortex is shut down. There's nothing you can do with them other than get them de-escalated. 
After that, we teach them how to do peace circles, which are very ancient root processes, and we have a very special way that we teach it, uh, which is different than most other ways that people do circle processes. And that teaches them leadership, how to run a group, how to teach people and coach people in listening. And then we, from there, we teach them some advanced peacemaking skills. All these skills being foundational to what it takes to become a mediator. And then the capstone of our curriculum is, is uh, mediation training, where we teach them how to intervene in, convene, and work with people who have a conflict where they are where the mediator is neutral to the conflict. So what we found is in prisons where we have firmly established prison pieces, the guards will call the inmates out at 3 in the morning and say, hey, I need you to come down and solve this problem for me. And they will actually mediate disputes between inmates, between inmates and correctional officers, between they've actually mediated disputes between two correctional officers. They mediated disputes in the work their prison workplaces. Uh, people have mediated disputes over the telephone with family members. We have one story where a woman mediated multiple, a woman suffering from multiple personality disorder, and she actually mediated between all the multiple personalities <laughs> to get some peace inside this woman's brain, and it worked. Uh, we laughed when we heard that one. That was pretty amazing. So it's the whole learning to be a mediator. Um, the whole process from zero to becoming certified as a mediator usually takes about a year and a half, and it takes about a it takes about three years for us to embed a project so it's fully internally sustainable within a prison. So we have trainers who are mediator trainers certified. It takes about three to three and a half years of, of our time to get to get that to happen. Um, so what led to the book was all these inmates came up and said, if I had learned these skills 20 years ago, I wouldn't be in prison right now. And after you hear that about 50 times, the light bulb goes on and says, gee, maybe I should write a book about this. And so I did, and uh, I mean, to picked it up, and they fast-tracked it. I mean, I turned the manuscript in in February, and it's coming out in a couple of weeks because they saw, the, the editors saw the value of what I was talking about. So it's really, it's very powerful work. Um, the basic skills that we teach in listening are based on the work of neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman. Everything we teach is based on neuroscience, how the brain actually processes information. If, it, if, it, if, if, it, if it's not based in science, we don't teach it. Um, and so it's, it's empirically grounded so that we know that we know that there's a reason why this stuff works and we can explain it to people. Now, I'm sure most of the consumers of this new book have never been to prison, don't know anyone in prison. Of course, most right. of the listeners to this podcast episode are in a similar situation. If what would you, if somebody listening to this podcast right now has a situation in their life where there's tension or they always have tension with one person in particular in their life, how would you recommend they begin? Obviously, we don't have three years to become fully trained right. in your process, but... You said 90 so seconds or less. So. Right. Let me, I, I will give the three basic steps to what you do. The book explains it, and then if people go and buy the book right now, I'm offering the book. I have a benefactor who is buying the book. If people are willing to pay for shipping, they can get the book for free, as long as the funds remain there, or the benefactor who wants a lot of people to read this book. But then can Is there a website? Yes, dougnoel.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. There's a banner there. Click on the banner. It'll take you right to the the page where the book is. Um, so here are the three steps. And this is what I teach in the book. And I have a video course that you can also get when you, when you order the book. If you want, you can go ahead and get the video course that will teach you all of this stuff. Step number one, 
ignore the words. This is so counterintuitive to everything that we've learned about listening. But when people are really agitated and angry, um, if you listen to the words, you're going to get triggered. And it's going to put you into the conflict cycle. You're going to spiral down with the person who's angry, and there's nothing you can do. So you have to learn how to ignore the words. Step number two, you're going to guess at the emotional experience that the speaker is having in the moment. Typically, it's going to be obvious. It's going to be anger and rage. Um, And then the third thing you're going to do is you're going to tell the speaker, you're going to reflect back to the speaker what it is that you think the speaker is experiencing in that moment with a simple use statement. You'll say, you are angry. You are enraged. You're frustrated. You are annoyed. Um, and you use a simple use statement. You never ask a question. You do not something do something like, oh, are you angry? You don't do that. And the other thing you don't do, which is a big mistake that people make, is they use an I statement. They say, what I think you're feeling is you're angry. All the research shows that unless you use a direct use statement, anything else will derail the process. Because effectively what we're, ta- what we're doing is when somebody's super highly emotional, their emotional centers in their brain are highly activated, it basically shuts down their prefrontal cortex. The emotions are overwhelming the ability of the rest of our brain to process and make decisions. So we are literally lending our prefrontal cortex to the speaker to allow that person to process his or her emotions. And that's what Lieberman showed in his studies. So when you do, as long as you keep the statements direct, you are, state the emotion, um, that will, you'll be amazed at how quickly that will calm people down. Emotions come in five layers, and, they all, and all the layers are almost always present. So it starts with anger, then it goes to disrespect and a sense of being treated unfairly, not being supported, then it goes to fear, then it goes to sadness and grief. Um, and then it typically at the bottom is even unlovable, unloved, and completely abandoned. Hmm. And so you can solve, you can track these layers. And, you can and we all them. experience <laughs> these layers. We all experience it, and we all have the innate ability to read the emotional data field of another human being. We have these things called mirror neurons that give us the ability to, to understand inside ourselves what another person is experiencing. And the problem is that we've never been trained how to use them because we don't pay attention to it. But once you start paying attention to it and you learn to overcome the, the social anxiety of labeling somebody else's emotions, which in the beginning feels very, it feels like you're patronizing, it feels like you are being impertinent, you're being rude and disruptive, you're not. Uh, when I teach this in workshops and in, in, in my classes, it's the first time I demonstrate it's fun. I, 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 do the, I, do the, we do the, I do the listening, have a student tell me a story, I reflect back. Then I ask the rest of the what do you see? And most of them will say, that is the rudest, most disrespectful thing I've ever seen. And I'll turn to the person that I was just listening to and say, well, what was your experience? And in, invariably, without exception, the student will say, I've never been so deeply hurt in my life. And the rest of the students, their jaws drop. Because what looks to them to be very rude and disruptive and patronizing and violates all the social norms that, that we think about when we think around conversation we can't believe that what I just did with the speaker just, and they'll cross-examine the student and say, come on, you're lying to me. No, no, no. I mean, he really connected with me. And that's when the first little light bulb goes on. Say, wait a minute. And so what I teach is when you're listening, you're not having a conversation. The norms of conversation are very different than the norms of listening. The 
we need to learn, learn these norms of listening and, and overcome our own social anxiety so that we can be present and alone our prefrontal cortex to the person who's really outraged and, and enraged. And so, if listening, so if listening is not a conversation, um, and of not course, a conversation. So, but in conversations, it, it's important to be an active listener so that you can respond to the other person and what they said. And in the conversation, the words are the, the most important thing. You're reacting to what they're saying and you're engaging. That is, that is what we're taught. But if you really want to de-escalate somebody who's very emotional, you have to abandon all that thinking. Huh. You have to abandon it. It will not work. It will not so, work. And the science shows us why it doesn't. And you should totally have a, counterintuitive. Yeah. So, like, basically, our listeners should say, you know, you do what you normally do in normal conversations, but whenever you right. find there's a situation where somebody is incredibly emotional, they're upset, uh, you see that the situation is escalating towards verbal abuse or physical violence, then what you really need to do is switch to this Douglas Knoll uh, method of de-escalation and engage in this new type of active listening uh, where it's not a conversation and that's where you use your three levels. So it's kind of like changing tracks in your brain to exactly. find in a particular situation. And that's exa- you, 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 you're using the exact uh, verbiage that we use, the vocabulary. We tell people when you are listening to somebody else, you stay on their track. Do not pick the train off of their track and put it on your track. You will, you will pick the train up and put it on your track whenever you use an I statement or ask a question. But as long as you use you statements, you stay on their track with them because you are listening to them from their frame of reference, not yours. Um, you can use affect labeling and core messaging in normal conversations if you want to, and many people do. But when you're focused on listening, you are focused on listening. And this works for two-year-olds. It works for kids with Asperger's. It works with elderly parents. It works with spouses. It's incredibly powerful with teenagers who are sullen and sulky and unresponsive. If you have a human brain that is functioning in any marginal way, this works because the human brain cannot help itself but respond to this kind of listening. It's hardwired to do this. And Douglas, I'd like to get personal for a moment if it's all right with you since uh, our listeners are often very interested in what drives uh, the individual interviewees and, and how what they speak about has affected their own lives. You mentioned at one point you were simultaneously a full-time lawyer, a full-time master's degree student, a full-time law professor, and then your marriage ended. I don't want to get into a place that's hurtful for you, but I'd like to ask you, this de-escalation process, have you been able to use it since that time, once you've learned this new process, to help with relationships in your own life? Have you been able to find that this adds utility to your own personal life? I use it all the time in both my current marriage. Well, I, I, I will say I don't need to use it much in my current marriage because part of the problem that I had back in that period is I had a lot of growing up to do. And even though I was intellectually smart, I was emotionally stupid and ignorant. And so I had a lot of growing to do. Uh, but now I'm blessed with a new marriage. I mean, we've been married for 10 years. And uh, we have, my wife is very enlightened. And so we have an incredible relationship, and we affect label each other on occasion, but we don't have a lot, we have no arguments or upset in our lives. Hmm. I mean, it's really an amazing, it's an amazing life, and it's because we have used these skills 
that we so can listen to each other in such deep ways. I use these skills everywhere. I use them I, when you're traveling. If you've got a problem, for example, with a flight delay, and you've got to use, use, take the gate agent and change things, I ethic label that person. I say, man, you must be really frustrated about all this. And you ethic label for 10 seconds or 15 seconds, and they list for the first time they feel really listened to when all they've been doing is ivory passengers all day. Guess what? <laughs> the treatment you get is pretty phenomenal. Same thing in restaurants. I'll go to restaurants and I'll ethic label the servers. Um, I ethic label all the time wherever I go. It's a natural part of who I am right now. And it just changes your relationships with everybody around you in really miraculous ways. It seems like this new thing has become a habit that has eventually become part of who you are and your personality. Exactly. That's exactly right. Because as you practice it, even in the beginning when it's really awkward and it feels like I'm violating a lot of rules here, this is not being rude, but as you practice it and you begin to get the feedback from people and you see how people respond to you, how positive it is, all you want to do is you just want to do this even more because you are, you are literally lifting other people into existence. And that is a huge gift that you can give to others. So that, but to answer the broader question of my life, you know, I made the decision when I left the practice of law in 2000 that I wasn't going to be a trial lawyer anymore, and I, I, I was on it at that time engaged in a deeper spiritual practice. And I decided that my life was really going to be dedicated to serving humanity in whatever way that manifested itself. And so that's what I've been doing. And I don't make nearly as much money as I made as a trial lawyer, but I, I help hundreds, thousands of people every year um, in my teaching, in my training, and, and in my in helping them as a mediator and a peacemaker. And it is the most fulfilling work in the world. And I'm, I'm just incredibly blessed by what I do. And I look at the polarization. I know you, you're in the Washington, D.C. area. And I, I look at the polarization that's going on in national and state politics. I just shake my head and say, this is just so unnecessary. If people could just learn how these skills, learn how to listen to each other. They might not always agree on policy differences. But at least they can listen to each other and be and, and people people will feel validated. And the political polarization is occurring because we're not listening at, at a human level to each other. And so all people are doing is it's like it's like being on a river. If if you're on a river, you've got to shout across the other side of the river in order to be heard. And because you're not being heard, and the reason that people are shouting so loud is because they don't feel like they're being listened to. So the first step to decrease political polarization is to teach people how to listen. Even people who you violently disagree with, you can still listen to them. You can still validate them as a human being. Then you can problem solve after you've got things calmed down. And you may or may not reach agreement, but at least you've got people de-escalated to a point where people feel feel like they've been treated as a human being instead of this crazy stuff that we've got going on that's destructive to our whole civil society. And that has been Douglas Knoll, the author of De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less a lawyer-turned-peacemaker who speaks about a new way of living by recognizing when a conversation or when a person is escalating to an unhealthy uh, level of emotional state uh, and how you can de-escalate those persons. He speaks about, he reflects upon himself as having once been intellectually smart but emotionally stupid and having undergone a personal transformation where ultimately he learned that uh, people need to feel validated, and and by practicing the three steps of ignoring the words, uh, having acknowledging the emotional or evaluating the emotional experience of the speaker, and then telling the speaker exactly what you think they're feeling or experiencing with direct use statements, you'll ultimately be able to 
have uh, improved relationships, whether they're utilitarian relationships in an airport or uh, profoundly personal uh, and rewarding and intimate relationships in a marriage, uh, these skills are ones that, that may take a lot of application to really uh, master, but are ones that surely can appeal to everyone, for we all work and, and live among each other, and and uh, and Doug, Douglas is offering us uh, uh, in the world a new way of interacting with each other. So, Douglas, I'd like to thank you for having us, uh, for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate it. It's been a great, great conversation. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.